Good morning. I'd like to welcome you all. My name is Ananta. This is Maria. And we're very honored to have you all join us, whether in person or uh, through cyberspace. Uh, we have many guests at the Expanding Light this weekend, so welcome to all of you also. We're glad you could join us. Our topic this week is Ego, Friend, or Foe. This is from Rays of the One Light by Swami Kriyananda. Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. Jesus Christ began his Beatitudes with the words, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To be poor in spirit in such a way as to merit the kingdom of heaven doesn't mean to be poor spirited. Rather, it means to see oneself as owning nothing, since all belongs to God, for all is a manifestation of his consciousness. St. John of the Cross wrote, If you would own everything, seek to own nothing. That which the ego relinquishes, offering it up to soul consciousness, is reclaimed forever in cosmic consciousness. Nothing is ever lost. Paramahansa Yogananda tells the story in Autobiography of a Yogi of a levitating saint, Baduri Mahashai. Master, said a disciple of this saint once, ardently, you are wonderful. You have renounced riches and comforts to seek God and to teach us wisdom. It was well known that Baduri Mahashai had forsaken great family wealth in his early childhood when single-mindedly he entered the yogic path. You are reversing the case. The saint's face held mild rebuke. I have left a few paltry rupees, a few petty pleasures, for a cosmic empire of endless bliss. How then have I denied myself anything? I know the joy of sharing the treasure. Is that a sacrifice? The short-sighted worldly folk are verily the real renunciates. They relinquish an unparalleled divine possession for a poor handful of earthly toys. The Bhagavad Gita in the third chapter states, All things are everywhere by nature wrought in interaction of the qualities. The fool, cheated by self, thinks this I did and that I wrought. But ah, thou strong-armed prince, a better-lessened mind, knowing the play of visible things within the world of sense, and how the qualities must qualify, standeth aloof even from his acts. Thus, through the Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. Good morning, everybody. <clears throat> I'd like to read from, from Yogananda's uh, Whispers from Eternity. And this is entitled, Spiritualize All Our Thoughts and Ambitions. O infinite alchemist, spiritualize our weaknesses into strength and our wrong thoughts into right thoughts. Grow thou a flower of divine understanding 
from every seed of activity. With the magic wand of foresight given by thee, teach us to transmute the ugly imps of selfish ambition into fairies of all serving noble aspirations. Train, Lord, each stallion of desire to become a champion racing for thine abode. Transform our base ignorance into the gold of wisdom that it become a liquid stream of spiritual gold rushing steadily to thy shore. Our topic this morning is ego, friend, or foe. It's a great topic, relevant to everyone, at whatever point we are on the spiritual path. Yogananda talked about the consciousness of the Creator manifest in His creation in this way. He said, God sleeps in the minerals. God dreams in the plants, stirs in the animals, and becomes awakened in the human incarnation, in a human being, eventually expressing that illuminated conscious state, that God-conscious state. Well, the human incarnation, while we might not always think it so, is a great blessing. Whatever comes to us, it's all in the guise of deep spiritual blessing. And it's really to be treasured because it's as a human being that we have the choice. We are conscious of being a living conscious being and we have the choice to accelerate in cooperation with God our evolution or we have the opportunity to enjoy his dream for dream's sake and experience that until we at some point get bored or just tired of it. Many of you who have had perhaps the experience of gardening on whatever level, you'll recognize this phenomena of when you are weeding, how oftentimes the weed will look exactly like what you are trying to grow. And if you can imagine a field of such weeds looking exactly like what you are trying to grow, and you send out a person perhaps with an untrained eye, it's very confusing. It's confusing to me sometimes until you really get in there and you send out such an individual and they mistakenly weed out that very thing you have seeded. <laughs> well, the ego is very much like this. The ego masquerades. It's a fantastic masquerader. It masquerades as the soul. That's really its whole purpose because its very livelihood, its very existence is dependent on its ability to fool us into thinking that it is real, that our ego is real, that that's our reality and that that is the only reality. There is no other reality other than me. And Yogananda, he talks about this progression of consciousness and that 
takes us further and further into maya. And he says it's, and so he highlights these stages as mind, intellect, ego, and feeling. And he uses the image of a horse. And he says, if, you, if you've got a mirror placed there and you're looking at that reflection of the horse in the mirror, that's the mind. That's what the mind perceives through information that is fed to it via the senses. And then the uh, intellect steps in and qualifies that and says, this is a horse. And then the ego, he says, steps in. And the ego says, this is my horse. You can see the increasing commitment of energy here to this seeming reality, the horse. And then feeling steps in. And this is when, this is what really engages and confines the ego. And feeling comes in and says, I am so happy to see my horse. I want to be with my horse all the time. I want to just play in this life and have fun with my horse and my animals and my friends and my job and travel and on and on and on it goes. And it's so alluring. It's so convincing. It just reels us in and it all becomes very personal at that point. It's all happening to us. It's all happening to me. And why is this happening to me? And and I am responsible for all of this. And on and on and on it goes. In the life of uh, Lord Krishna, Krishna is one of the incarnations of God. And many, many are the stories, and I'm not going to go into this in great deal more than to say the point. But Krishna is fighting one of the many incarnate evildoers on the planet. And this great battle ensues, and the evildoer is almost, he's all but vanquished. He's on his gasping breath. And of course, it's all about Krishna, really, God saving this soul from delusion. So this great battle is going on, and it's almost wrapping up. And finally, the evildoer says to Krishna, it is so hard to abandon this dread disease. I, I am smitten by it. And you just, in that moment, you know, he just melts into Krishna's love and is absolved and and forgiven and whatnot. But I just thought it was such a great phrase. It's so hard to abandon this dread disease, I. You know, what? (laughs) I, me, the ego. And Swami Kriyananda, he says, really our only job in this life is to understand that we are not just an ego. That's our job, to understand that we are not just an ego. And the sooner we can relinquish that ego, start that process, our consciousness starts to move closer to the consciousness of the guru, to the consciousness of the illumined ones. But also as it starts this fight begins and we think to ourselves, give it up, give up my ego. What is going to happen to me? Who am I going to become? Will I cease to exist? Will people notice me? How can I be successful without my ego, without my 
talents, without my great abilities and all the things that I can do and say and be and everything. And it just on and on and on it goes this way. And for the devotee, it gets even more subtle. Devotees have ego. Disciples have ego. You know, that's what we're here trying to work out and let go of. And it can get very, very subtle. The obvious ones, okay, we can see that. We can see that. But those subtle ones, Swamiji wrote that song, Love is a Magician. And in it he says, I imagined, he's speaking to God, I imagined you didn't care. That's the ego. You're not interested in me. You're not hearing my prayer. You're not listening to my prayer. You're not answering my prayer. (laughs) And we just keep going on and on and on like that. And if we decide that we want to, okay, you know, I'm, I'm going to devote my life spiritually, I take discipleship, I practice the techniques, I understand, as Swamiji says, that there is something more than the ego, and I need to really work at transcending this. If we get that far, we are taking a step to engage in an even greater battle, and we are entering onto that battlefield of life, and we're fighting that tendency of the ego to want to hold it in a box, hold it within boundaries, hold it within a comfort zone. And this is why in the Gita, Krishna's addressing Arjuna. And it's not just at this point, it's many points throughout the Gita. And he addresses Arjuna as strong-armed prince to reinforce that inherent strength of the devotee. This is battle. It is serious battle. And it takes energy. We can't just sort of, oh, life, life is beautiful. I'm just going to be in God. You know, you just, you head out the door to wherever we serve in the morning, wherever we are, and wham, it just hits. And what responds? Lots of times, it's the ego. It just, it's right there. You know, it's not far away. It's right there. It's first responder, you know. (laughs) And it just comes out. And we can't even help ourselves hardly. And so this great battle when Babaji sent Lahiri back from the Himalayas, back from the cave, out into the world, he said, be in the world and not of it. He wasn't just saying, oh, just be out there. Devotees will come and just don't think about the drama very much. Just teach them from the Gita. Give them Kriya. Just be in God. You know, he was saying, be in the world and be not of it. And that takes energy to be present, to be conscious, to be super conscious and vigilant about this sometimes friend, but most of the time otherwise, until we really harness the ego as friend, until we really get it to work with us to go to God. But it takes a tremendous amount of strength. It takes focus. It takes courage to do that battle. And so I wanted to just address some of the things that, you know, it's it's a subject that could just fill volumes, but just some of the ways in which we can consider and look at in terms of this transcendence of the ego and moving closer to the consciousness of the masters. Yogananda said, banish the thought of body 
Banish the thought that you are a body. I was reading the other day in Metaphysical Meditations, and he said, Why bind the infinite soul to a bony post of flesh? It's so great. Why bind the infinite soul to a bony post of flesh? Let it go. Let it go already. I just thought that was fantastic. And oftentimes he says in daily life to try something. He says every day try to do something that is difficult for you or something that is new. You know, maybe you think you can't do it. Maybe you think you don't have the talent for it the resources for it, the skill level, whatever it is that it takes, or maybe it's just something you've never even, it's like, I'm not doing that, you know, that's just way out of my league. And, uh, but to just try and take on something like that because it starts, to, it starts to break those walls of self-definition and that wall starts to crumble. You know, every time we can take a step to push through it, to push beyond it, to do something that we don't equate normally on a daily basis with ourselves. This is why he said he encouraged us so much every day to frequent the poem, Samadhi. Because when we get centered in the ego, it's very hard to consider a reality without it. I mean, we can talk about this, and I can talk about it, we can read about it, we can listen to Swamiji, the Master, talk about it. But to consider a world without egos, to consider a consciousness, a space without ego, it's it's really, it's challenging to access that. And so he says, read my poem, Samadhi, because... We read about and we familiarize ourselves, if in word, if nothing else, with a reality that we know must be real because the masters say it's real, even if we can't imagine it. But if we can frequent that, it's just like it's just bathing in that consciousness and starting to maybe we just use our imagination, but we start to consider the realm of possibility outside of the ego. And uh, Swamiji tells a story when he first came to um, the ashram with Yogananda and pretty much early on, right then, uh, Yogananda put him in charge of the monks. This wasn't an easy step for him. He was younger than almost all of them. And uh, his birth name was Donald. Yogananda pretty much from the start practically called him Walter. And one day, after he was put in charge of the monks, he asked Yogananda, well, what should I go by, Donald, Walter? And Yogananda said, they should call you Reverend Walter. <laughs> this, this wasn't at all. I mean, he never would have brought the subject up if it had occurred to him that this could be an answer. He didn't at all want to be called Reverend Walter. And, uh, you know, there it was. But he said to the monks, he said, okay, okay, I will do this, but you must understand that I am your servant. I am not your teacher. I am not your guru. I am not, you know, here to tell you what to do for my, you know, for power's sake. You know, I am here as your servant. I am here to help you, if I can, in any way possible, to 
strengthen your spiritual life, to, to help us together strengthen uh, our spiritual environment and to grow deeper in our relationship with God. And this is probably one of the most profound ways to transcend the ego, is to get into our consciousness this attitude of being servant, of serving others, to not live this life in expectation of some thought about what people owe me, how people need to respond to me, you know, or, or I'm in such and such a role, I am teacher, I am speaker, I am, you know, whatever. This thought that somehow the world owes us something and that our position uh, that our p- position demands that they respond in a certain way, but to rather see ourselves as a servant to others, as someone who can help others. And it doesn't have to be in big cosmic ways, just the little things, that we're all here to help each other. We are all reminders of God to one another. And to see our lives in that way, I know even for those of you who are out there in, you know, in the workplace outside of an ashram context. I know that if you act this way, if you hold this thought, people will begin to respond to you differently. They'll treat you differently because they'll see you as their friend and not some, you know, other ego that wants control or or demands the control of others. It's a wonderful story that Uh, Swamiji told in his autobiography, The Path, The New Path. And it's about a saint uh, by the name of Namdev. And Namdev lived in a village, a simple Indian village. There happened to be also there another saint. And one day there was this holy festival to which everyone gathered. And at a certain point, this other saint who was also... Uh, a potter, and he picked up a little stick. And as the story goes, he used to use this stick. He used it on a regular basis to test his pottery. He would whack it, and his ear was so tuned that he could tell the difference between a pot, pot that was sound and a pot that had a flaw. Maybe a little air bubble, maybe a crack unseen to the eye on the surface but deep inside this kind of thing well he picks up his stick and he starts walking around the room and he just starts whacking people (laughs) on the back and uh, he gets to Namdev without any hesitation and Namdev is just incensed he can't believe it thinking to himself I'm this you know I'm this man's equal what is he doing And he shouts out an objection. You know, all his devotees are there too, his followers. And the other saint, the potter, says, Hmm, it seems there's a crack in this pot. (laughs) And Namdev is totally embarrassed at this point. You know, he's a saint, but he still has some ego. He is so embarrassed. Everyone heard it. And he goes away. And he goes to the temple and he prays to Krishna, whom he, that's the incarnation of God that he 
communes with daily. And he, he meditates and prays every day with Krishna. He experiences this great bliss. And he goes to Krishna, how could you do this to me? In front of everybody, you know, you, you pointed out some flaw. You know, how could you do this when all of my students are there? And Krishna said, Namdev, I can't help it. There is a crack in your pot. And Namdev prostrates himself on the floor and he says, forgive me, Lord. What must I do? And he says, you must go to your guru. And Namdev says, but I, I come to you every day. And Krishna says, that's my law. You must go to my guru. Only he can lead you through your path to salvation. So Namdev says, at least tell me where he is. So Krishna tells him, and Namdev heads off to some neighboring village. And he gets there. First person he meets, he inquires of that person, you know, do you know where so-and-so is? That lunatic? You want to talk to that lunatic? Oh, he's crazy. No one would want to spend any time with him. And the man just walks the other way. And Namdev continues on, the next person he runs into, can you tell me where this man is? He's crazy. He's totally crazy. But you're going to find him probably down there at the temple. He spends most of his time there. Go if you want. And Namdev goes, and he goes into the temple. At first he sees nothing. And then, much to his horror, he sees sprawled on the floor this disheveled, unkept figure of a man old man in rags, just sprawled on the floor. And what's worse is his feet are resting on the Shiva Lingam, which is Shiva incarnate. It's the symbol of the Lord in the aspect of Shiva. So this is totally blasphemous. This is the worst possible offense. And Namdev is beside himself and he shouts at the man, how can you do this? How can you treat the temple and this lingam in this way. And the man says, oh, I'm so sorry. I just, I didn't think. He said, I'm, I, I can't, I'm too old to get up and move. I'm exhausted. Go ahead, move my feet. So Namdev goes over to him. He picks up his feet and he moves them, quarter turn, half a turn. He sets them down. And right in that place where he sets this man's feet, a Shiva Lingam pops up out of the temple floor. And Namdev is not to be stopped. <laughs> this man, something has to be done about this fellow. And he picks up the feet and he moves them again, a second time, a third time, a fourth time. And finally, each time, a Shiva Lingam comes up where he places those feet. And at the fourth time, he realizes what he has done. And he realizes his heir and why Krishna, his God, sent him here. And in that moment, he goes into a state of bliss. And he wanders through the countryside without home, without boundary, without identity, just in this bliss state. Finally, weeks go by, months go by, six months go by, and he finds himself at the very village where he used to live. And he goes to the temple there and he hears Krishna's voice calling out to him, Namdev, where have you been? You used to come here every day. You prayed with me every day. 
How is it you have not come? I miss you. And Namdev says, Oh, Lord, I know, I know you're teasing me. I am with you all of the time. And then Krishna says to him, There's no crack in that pot. <laughs> and so Namdev, you know, he, he saw himself as someone separate. You know, like that chant we sang this morning, frozen sky, we're the vast, infinite sky. Just for this moment, we're a little frozen piece in this human incarnation. But our nature is expansive. Our nature is cosmic. Our nature is the infinite. And when we start, when we get centered in the ego, we, we're centered in a separate reality, our own reality. It's me. It's what's happening to me. It's my problem. It's the way people are treating me. It's the job they've given me. It's the environment I live in. It's my parents who gave me birth. I mean, just on and on. It does not stop. The ego is incredibly creative in creating this illusion that what is inside the box is real. And it's not that this is unreal. It's more that this doesn't even exist. There is no other reality other than me and how I experience the world and how I relate to it. And so if we want to transcend the ego, we have to remember that infinite nature inside our own selves. And Swamiji says, he says, when you sit to meditate, even before you pray, you sit down, you're in your room, you're outdoors, wherever you are, and you sit down and you close your eyes and you try to feel space. Space in front of you, behind you to the right, to the left, above, below, space. And he says millions of miles of space. Try to feel that extent of space around you and then try to feel that experience of space inside the little body. And to try to feel that vastness is to start to melt that iron cage of the ego. When Swamiji, also when he was very early on with, with Master, with Yogananda, he, Yogananda talked so much to everybody, but also to Swamiji. He was intellectual by nature, a deep devotional side, but it hadn't really been brought to the fore. And Master talked about devotion, and Swamiji would spend hours and hours chanting. And one of his favorite chants was the one of Rampashad. Uh, will that day come to me, Ma, when saying, Mother dear, my eyes will fill with tears. Just saying that, just saying that would move him, can move one spiritually. And he noticed that in chanting that chant repeatedly, again and again, that it was, it was in fact transforming his consciousness. But he said, I began to think that perhaps I deserved some (laughs) self-congratulation for becoming so devotional. And he said, right about that time, one of the monks uh, repeated something that Yogananda said in conversation with a grouping of them. Evidently, um, Walter, Swami Kriyananda, wasn't there. 
But Master said, look how much I've changed, Walter. And Swamiji knew, you know, it was that reminder that it's, it's God's grace through the guru that changes us, that helps us to transcend the ego. The ego can't, as an ego, we can't transcend it. We're just, we're smitten by it. We're steeped in it. You know, this dread disease of the ego. And, uh, but it's through that grace of God, that grace of the guru, that something can really take place here, that we can really be changed. And so in meditation, to explore that vastness, that expanded reality within your own self, and to know that when, you know, when we meditate through our practices, I mean, what's really happening is that we're becoming the true individual that we are, the true unique expression of God that we are. We think it's this ego, but the e- because the ego is masquerading as the soul and doing such a fantastic job. But in meditation, we experience the soul, the reality of the soul, the nature of the soul. And there, we are unique, we are individual in that way as an expression of the divine. And we grow into that and we come to know that reality when we meditate. I'd like to just close with Yogananda's words. It was a, um, a rhymed couplet that he wrote. And he said, When this I shall die, then will I know who am I. Thank Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed Oh.